Okay, so when I was in my 20s, I guess, like a lot of people in their 20s, I was going through a lot of crap. I was making a lot of poor decisions <laughs> and being super stressed about graduate school. And I was visiting my grandparents one time, and um, I, my grandmother was like, oh, Maria, are you okay? You seem really down. And I just started crying, and I said, you know, Grandma, I know, I was like, Grandma, I feel like the 20s are supposed to be the best years of my life, and I am ruining them. I'm so sad, and I'm so stressed out, and I feel like they're passing me by. And my grandma got this, like, amazing look on her face, like, completely bewildered. And she said, (laughs) what? Who told you the 20s are the best years of your life? The 20s are the worst years of your life. You're always, like... (laughs) You're still trying to figure everything out. It's so stressful. She's like, no way. Things don't start to get good until 30. And then it just gets better every decade after that. And she was like, she's like, yeah. And it doesn't really get good till 50, I think. And I was just like, what? (laughs) It was like the most wonderful, freeing advice I could have possibly gotten. She's so enlightened. Yeah. Just like, also just like shrugged off so much anxiety about like enjoying my life. And I just realized that, like, I had so much life to live and that all the, like, beer commercials where everyone's having fun in, like, short skirts and sparkling parties with champagne and things like that, like, that's not where all the fun is in life, you know? There's, like, so much greatness to be had. And it just, yeah, helped me chill out a lot. (laughs) That's so great. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Zachagosasiri. So today we're talking about aging, what it feels like to have it happen to us as American women, and what getting older means for our relationships with our parents, especially when your parents are first-generation immigrants. If you haven't seen Aziz Ansari's episode called Parents on his show Master of None, what are you doing? Pull up your Netflix now. Abandon the show. Totally. (laughs) Just kidding. Hang in there with us for a little while while we dive into the tricky business uh, that is aging in America today. Okay, so when I was doing research for this topic today, I came across a saying a couple places that goes, men age like a fine wine while women age like a glass of milk. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) I was like, Uh, ouch. Uh, But the more I was thinking about it, right, I was like, was this just like crazy misogynist lies or is it actually a decent reflection of how you know, what we value in society when it comes to gender roles. And some of the stuff that I saw thrown around was that, you know, it's, we talk about aging, it's not just like how people look, but also that the cultural stereotype is that what people look for in men is status and wealth, whereas in women, it's youth, beauty, and I guess like fertility. And so in that sense, the longer a man lives, the easier it is for him to gather together wealth and status. Whereas for women, you have really like bounded sense of like how long it is that you're going to be young because that's just how time works, right? And like basically at the flip of a switch, it's not just like the milk becomes so undesirable. It's like disgusting. It's actually repulsive. Exactly. Although I would just like to point out that if you open up some wine and you leave it too long, that also gets disgusting. (laughs) You tell them, Maria. (laughs) 
and this has been kind of interesting and on my mind as I've turned 30 a couple years ago and I'm starting to notice that, you know, like my body is not really always doing the stuff that I expect it to do. Like it's like randomly aches and things like that sometimes. Like why am I stiff? I like don't understand. <laughs> I'm like always stiff. Like why my neck hurts? <laughs> I know. I'm becoming like one of those aggravating people at the gym who's like, no, I really have to stretch a lot. <laughs> So, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Do you Have you felt like, it's okay if I'm say, you've turned 30? Yeah, totally. I'm, and, like, okay with telling people how old I am. Yeah. Okay, great. So, like, has turning 30 changed the way that you think about, you know, your age or your life? Okay. I, at the risk of jinxing myself mm. and then, like, tomorrow hating it, I have loved getting older. And I especially loved hitting 30. Mm-hmm. Professionally, I feel more respected and less like this special kid who Mm -hmm. is doing things at a younger age and more just like this is like age appropriate for me. I... I love... So I love the confidence that comes with getting older and like kind of the experience. I also love like knowing what works for me, both in the superficial sense. Like I used to go to the Mm drugstore and buy like 50 different kinds of everything and try different things out and like 90% of the things were like bad or wrong and I was just like wasting money life and like left and right and now Huge. I like know what works for me and I only buy that and I love like life hacks and yeah. just the stuff like I know how to optimize for myself and my habits I basically stopped trying to do all the things I knew mm-hmm. eventually that I was just bad at like hey focus on what your what your strengths are And then there's this this other piece that I'm, like, especially proud of, which is within me, I know I always had a knack for, like, mentorship and sponsorship of people (laughs) below me, except for I was always, like, the lowest person in, like, all of the rungs. So I never had an opportunity to, like, exercise that. And the more I climb professionally, I love helping other people out along the way. Like, I derive a lot of satisfaction from it. I like sharing strategies and reflections. And Mm -hmm. it's cool that I get to do that when I get older. So those are, like – like maybe 5% of the reasons I love being in my 30s. A lot of that resonates with me too. I think especially being an academic, mm. having been a professor when I was in my late 20s, like in academia that's really young mm-hmm. and I would constantly get mistaken for a student and it was super awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and like it was hard to like reach back on my years of wisdom when I like didn't have that many of them. And yeah, I agree that it's really nice to be in a position to be able to help people who are starting out more. Yeah. 30s the new 20 I'm so hot still uh-huh. better bra better automobile uh-huh. better yard no nah. better hundred mil then buy the songs and I'll probably start another trend I know everything you want to I did all that by the age of 21 by 22 I had that brand new act cool I guess you could say that my legend just begun it sounds like we are pretty happy about being in our 30s at the same time like if you look out in popular culture Getting older is not really represented as particularly a good thing for women. True fact. Totally. If you look at, like, all the anti-aging creams in the store that supposedly I'm supposed to be using right now, it's a little bit, like, nerve-wracking. And, I mean, Hollywood is, like, super brutal for this. There's an intense double standard where you have these male actors getting cast opposite women who were decades younger than them. It's like no matter how much older they get, the age of the woman who's supposed to be their love interest like doesn't seem to change. Totally fair. We're going to link to some really great research done by Vulture on this, and they've done some really great graphics on it. But great in the sense it's presented well, terrifying in the sense that there's 
literally decades between co-stars. I think of, I love Jennifer Lawrence, but like mm-hmm. she's often cast against men in their 40s and even 50s. Scarlett Johansson the same way. And like, mm-hmm. that's not, I mean, that's not on them. It's just, it sucks that in like five or 10 years, mm-hmm. the same male co-stars are going to be cast against women who are many, many years younger than these women. So it's just, it continues to happen. And it it's like, fine, maybe it's just the movies, but the movies translate to lots of other things in our lives, including like magazine covers and other expectations we have. And so it's not shocking or weird or gross to see that disparity. But like, what happens to a woman when she hits 35? Is she like immediately undesirable? Yeah, which is just absurd, right? Especially yeah. since it's such an extreme double standard. Um, some good commentary on this was featured in Inside Amy Schumer's last season when she did a sketch called Last Fuckable Day, and it featured Amy along with Tina Fey, Patricia Arquette, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who are basically together toasting Julia Louis-Dreyfus's Last Fuckable Day as an actress. <laughs> and or will play some audio from it. We're celebrating Julia's Last Fuckable Day. Yes. Salud. Sorry, did you say Julia's last fuckable day? Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm. In every actress's life, the media decides when you finally reach the point where you're not believably fuckable anymore. I mean, how do you know? Who tells you? Oh. Well, nobody, nobody really overtly tells you, but there right. are signs. You like, you know yeah. how um, Sally Field was Tom Hanks's love interest in Punchline, and then like 20 minutes later, she was his mom in Forrest Gump. Or you might get offered a rom-com with Jack Nicholson where you're competing with another woman to fuck him. Or I just had an audition for Mrs. Claus. You're kidding me. I read for that part. I, I read for that too. You did? <laughs> hey, who got that? J-Lo. Brutal. I love it. Yeah, I mean, and there's some great, like, theoretical lenses to help us think about, like, how how come? Why so unfair? Why did this happen? How does this happen? Particularly some good feminist criticism that'll help us think about it. Um, this woman, Linda Arganon, wrote a book called Women in Aging, Transcending the Myths. Yeah. (laughs) And she basically argues that a lot of our myths and expectations about aging for women come from a combination of androcentrism, which is like basically seeing the male as the norm and the female as the other, Mm -hmm. and biological determinism, which is a philosophical, scientific, political theory that basically explains social and economic differences between men and women and also lots of other kinds of groups, so racial and ethnic minorities, sexual orientations, that kind of thing, as a result of natural biological differences. And, like, this is this could be pretty contentious, and I have a lot of anger feels towards biological determinism. But basically, yeah. you know, Gannon argues that it's often used to legitimize inequality. Totally. And we should be quick to say there's a difference between, like, biology and biological determinism i mean it can be used to justify like racism and it like is basically the the opposite of acknowledging that a lot of these things like gender and race are socially constructed so really leaning on these things as being biological makes it okay to have these structural differences exactly putting way too much on this idea that something is quote-unquote natural when actually usually there's a lot of construction going on there it's creepy Gannon basically is arguing that according to biological determinism, women's main roles are reproductive, right? And in an androcentric world, because, you know, in a world where the male is the norm, women's reproductive roles are inferior to male ones. So, like, if you think of it in these terms, the most useful time in a woman's life is when she's fertile. And the most desirable time is when she's young and, quote, unquote, unspoiled. And um, you can, like, 
find her, inseminate her, and then she can like reproduce your genes or whatever. <laughs> and then when she gets old, she's not useful anymore because she's hit menopause and now she is no longer reproductively viable. So according to this like biological determinist version of the world, it makes sense for us to socially value young women or youth and beauty, if not the actual women who have them, and then to kind of lose interest in women as they get older and lose that youth and beauty as it's socially determined. That's so sad. It's hard not to see that around us. Yeah. I mean, this kind of like speaks to a lot of what we're saying about the Hollywood casting, right? Yeah. Part of one of the things she talks about is this like confusion between fertility and potency. Mm -hmm. Because like men can supposedly produce sperm and babies until they die in this like biological determinist view of the world then that gives men more, quote-unquote, natural tendencies towards being potent and sexual and virile their whole lives long. Mm -hmm. So you can cast, like, a 70-year-old Harrison Ford. I don't even know how old he is. Is he 70? I don't know. (laughs) I think he is. (laughs) Opposite a 28-year-old woman, and it doesn't read as shockingly as casting a 70-year-old woman against a 20-year-old man. Right. Totally. Dear old daddy, I called you to bear If I could erase the lines from your face And bring back the gold to your hair If God would but grant me the power Just to turn back the pages of time I'd give all I own if I could but atone to that silver hair daddy. So Gannon talks about two major old lady tropes. The first is the grandmotherly matron who's overweight, who knits and cooks. You totally have that image. Nice grandma, right? (laughs) Yeah, nice grandma. And the second is this irritable, depressed cranky lady who occupies her time meddling in others' lives and kind of gossiping. Mm-hmm. Like spinster. He's like a spinster, <laughs> exactly. And and neither of these are acknowledged or predicated on any kind of sexuality for these women. Like th- these are decidedly asexual roles and ones that so many of our cultural references rely on. And if there is a sexy older woman, like that's actually the story. It's never like a sideshow or a natural part of something else. Mm-hmm. It's like this aberration. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because even though these two kinds of femininity are supposed to be totally opposite, they're based on the same narrative. One where the friendly cookie baking one has already expressed her sexuality and like successfully reproduced and filled her role as part of patriarchy's desire for like more reproduction or whatever um and then she can be this happy cozy cookie maker (laughs) and then and then like the the mean old crone is like permanently sexually frustrated and she's kind of missed out on her chance to have kids and so then she goes around just making everyone's lives terrible because she screwed over the patriarchy's desire for reproduction and now she's just a useless old He's making everyone else miserable. I mean, mad harsh. Yeah, but like, it's actually, I mean, not so, not uncommon. And even I've played into that, right? Like, I, at my worst, like, I can refer to people like that. I think these are just like really common cultural narratives. Yeah. Yeah. And, but but I think what's really powerful about what Gannon is arguing is that like, it suggests that we're all sort of structuring our ideas about how life works for women over the course of their lives yeah. on a narrative that at its core is pretty sexist 
and not necessarily correct. But fear not. Not all women are slaves to these tropes. Truths. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of cultural touch points that, that are clearly like oppositional to this, that are in protest to these frameworks. And I, I think a really great example that you found was a poem by Jenny Joseph called Warning from 1961. And it happens to be the most popular post-war poem in Britain, according to a BBC poll from 1996. So I think it would be fun for us to read it. What do you think? I think we should absolutely read it. Great. Warning. When I'm an old woman, I shall wear purple, with a red hat, which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. And I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals, and say, we've no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired, and gobble up samples in shops, and press alarm bells, and run my stick along the public railings, and make up for the sobriety of my youth. I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick the flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages at a go or only bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now, so people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am old and start to wear purple. Beautiful. I love it. Ah, she's great. This is great. <laughs> Yeah, I just love that this is something that back in the 90s, all of Britain decided was their favorite poem. So it's not just like a niche set of voices, but something that really resonates with people, that being older means that there's all kinds of freedoms from being constrained by social norms. And the poem actually ended up being the inspiration for this huge society called the Red Hat Society, which is you know based on those opening lines about um, wearing purple and wearing a red hat that doesn't go. And it's basically like embracing, having fun, especially amongst older women and celebrating friendship and just cutting loose. As far as I can tell, it's not really like overtly feminist, but um, it's really just about like ladies getting dressed up in what they want and getting down with each other. And I'm down with that. I guess just to wrap up, I'm realizing that as I'm getting older, my concerns about aging are actually not so much about my appearance um, as much as I thought it would be more about I love life and I, I don't want it to get closer to the end, at least not right now. Um, and also these like other like megalomaniacal things about wanting to have a life that makes a lasting difference for the better in the world and wondering how close I am to doing that as I get older. So, you know, maybe our anxieties change as our mindsets change. And I know for me, this feminist theory about why being older is often hard for women in Western society it really helped me think about what I wanted for my whole life. So in that way, I think it helped to prepare me for starting to move into decades that people are associating more with being older and owning it. It's also important to think about the fact that it's not always how old you are that's determinative of your outcomes and your ability to live independently or have a, an okay life. A lot of times, socioeconomic factors like race, ethnicity, educational attainment, and your different kinds of finances 
can be more likely to affect your cognitive function and functional decline than age itself. And that's not so different than kind of other ages. And I think that kind of intersectional lens is not something I thought about prior to this, but it's something like you and I always talk about in all sorts of the other, all the other topics we talk about, but it also exists here. Mm Mm-hmm, sure. I looked at this piece from the MacArthur Foundation. They commissioned this like network on an aging society, and they put out this great document about myths around aging. And one of the things they really try to demonstrate it's not this big like us young people versus them old people like we're the norm and they're this like problem that we have to deal with but actually it's like a lot more integrated into the very fabric of what it means to be an American so Mm -hmm. like the fact that you have to think about the relationship between race and age as much as you have to just think about age you know or about educational background you know that that stuff it really helps you realize that a lot of things that we say are issues with an aging population are just like bigger picture questions of like what do we have to think about our population like how do we build our networks and infrastructures in a way that helps everybody and they put out these cool ideas about like just rethinking what a normal life looks like from cradle to grave and maybe kind of throw out a couple of the questions they were asking i'd love that yeah because it's hard to think creatively about this stuff just because we think about old people and we're like this is how it is <laughs> yeah exactly so one of the things they asked was should there be more education interspersed throughout middle age so people will be prepared to cope with technological change and continue to be productive later in life which like seems like a great idea right yes yes especially when you think about it in relationship to socioeconomic factors and education Right. If you don't front load all educational opportunities right at the beginning of someone's life, it really makes it, first of all, easier for them to be able to keep up with technology as it changes, but also gives them other opportunities throughout their lives to advance. So you're not doomed with where you've come from always. Some of the other questions they asked were, should employers have incentives to educate employees and keep them in the workforce longer? Can we develop more flexible approaches to work schedules and worksite design so it can accommodate a greater diversity of lifestyles and, and um, activity? Should efforts outside the workforce, like volunteering, be encouraged in some way? Um, and can we think of like win-win approaches that benefit multiple generations? And for that, they gave this example of a South African pension project where they were giving older women who live in multi-generational families pensions and seeing that their granddaughters tended to be healthier over time. Wow. It was a, yeah, it was a kind of an intervention that was helping both older women and younger people at the same time. So good for all of society at once. Sure. Another thing that kind of blew my mind was some of the research on the desires of aging populations and how they want to live and how they want to grow old and how many of them want to live live alone in in older age which i just found to be super surprising when i get older losing my head many years from now will you still be sending me valentine birthday greetings bottle of wine if i'd been out till quarter to three would you lock the door will you still need me will you still feed me I spent some time thinking about it and then it actually made sense to me in that the way you've lived for a long time, you you know your life hacks, you know your ways in which you do things, you have your norms and and the way you operate is optimized for how you are. Yeah. And the setting the scene for that is really important. And so like 
of course, if that it changes, you're uprooted and people don't like feeling burdensome to others. So mm-hmm. I guess once I spent some more time thinking about it, it wasn't as surprising. It's just like goes against some of my intuitions about the idea of loneliness. Sure. Yeah. And it also yeah. really fits like American narratives of like independence and. Yeah. Something I really I wanted to speak to was these understandings of elder care in our society are different for a lot of immigrants. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically about South Asians, East Asians, and a lot of Latino families who see the care of the aging populations as the responsibility of kids and families, mm-hmm. and the idea that like multi-generational families are the norm, and that it's the responsibility of these kids to take care of their parents. And it resonates for me as like a South Asian American and as a Muslim on, on several levels. There are these cultural notions of shame and not feeling wanted coming from a society where the elders are revered, they're highly respected. The older you get, the more social capital you have in some senses. And then you move to a society where that's just not simply not the case. And yeah. you're not even around those family members who are supposedly supposed to respect you if you're put away in a home. The language is truly like being put away and it's discussed with this real judgment about it. And mm-hmm. so even for people, even for people for whom like independence is important, even if you don't live with your kids, the constant relationship, the being venerated, the being respected and, and kind of being looped in and in touch with your kids is an important part of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that really resonates. And I think, you know, as we have a society with this aging population that might have different values and standards, it's important to think about what facilities and structures we have set up for them. And I'm thinking about like older Muslim South Asians, for example, who came here in the 60s and 70s. They're now retiring and entering an age where they may not be able to live independently, but they might have challenges around language or halal meals or gender norms about like women and men mixing in these facilities or like your day-to-day life is imbued with these values and ideas and in Mm -hmm. your own home space you can control it but if you're living elsewhere that doesn't have the cultural competency to be able to cater to that or understand it or at least respect it your day-to-day could be very, very challenging in some sort of alternate facility that doesn't, you know, just doesn't think about things in that way. Yeah, totally. I mean, it makes me think about, you know, I I go to visit um, my partner's grandma and she lives in a kind of assistant living facility where it's a big apartment building and it's all just like apartments where everyone's independent, but there's access to services if you need them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people in the building are friends and they hang out and they have dinner together. His grandma has her like cousin who's her like best friend and they're like hanging out together like all the time. And what's really striking is that they're all Quebecois and it's part of this cultural norm where they know what to expect in a certain way. I'm sure it's it can be hard to move into that kind of environment anyway, but I can only imagine how much more difficult it is if what you're used to at home every day is vastly different from something like that. Totally. And I want to kind of speak to that, the understandings that first-generation folks might have about how they are to be cared for and to some extent how they cared for their own parents in a mm-hmm. really self-sacrificing way doesn't necessarily translate to the second generation and it can lead to a lot of tension and stress. It's a very loaded type of scenario. And it reminds Mm -hmm. me of this, like lots of people share like Facebook quotes. I mean, I see them on Instagram too, but like 
sometimes older people <laughs> share mm-hmm. these like 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 crazy quotes not crazy like they totally resonate and one that I saw passed around frequently and very much liked by like the social sphere of someone older than me you know who was South Asian was we're the last generation who listened to our parents and the first who has to listen to their kids so this Ouch. idea that they can't be the beneficiaries of however they land in this structure they were never going to benefit from the system and it's no. kind of sad and like it kind of induces guilt in me, which is probably the whole point of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say, like, I'm pretty sure that this is not the only generation that has felt this way. Right. right? I mean, think about, like, in the 60s, right, the flower children, their parents must have been like, what are you doing? Why does nobody respect me? So totally. definitely not the only ones. But I can see why, of course, it still feels shocking and painful. Yeah. This stuff is really personal and you know, really important for all of us. I know we were talking earlier about, um, you know, each of our parents and I, I basically can't even have this conversation and think about it seriously without crying. I know. It's you really, know? it's loaded in so many ways. It's about like, what's the meaning of life, family relationships, respect, love. I know in myself anyway, one of the ways I deal with it is just like, ah, uh, let's just not talk about that yeah. right now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, that might be a good, a good way to kind of wrap this up because – um, at least in the conversations I've had with my family members about it, it's not at all easy. It's not necessarily just one conversation you have, but I think it's a really great opportunity, not even, not just to understand the wishes of someone else, but to be able to find a useful way to convey your own opinions and ideas about this. And mm-hmm. so the AARP has a super useful guide for how to start these conversations gently and respectfully. Um, from how to set the right tone to the key issues you'll want to cover. And Uh we're going to go ahead and link to this on our website. But I think the key takeaway here is to maybe check that out and think about starting to have those conversations. Even if they make you cry. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more information about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. Yes, do it. And leave us reviews. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our excellent intern, Olive Carrollhatch. Music composition and art design by the sensational, fantabulous Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.